Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got a quick solo adventure to go on, and this one will not be directed by Ron Howard. He's going to go poop. When Grandpa Rick pats his belly like that and leaves without Morty, it means he's going to go poop. The Great Impost has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Just a very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, what do you think about Melinda Gates's billion-dollar initiative? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about it until I, I listened to your forthcoming segment with Christina Hoff Summers. I had no idea. But when I heard about it, the billion dollars, and I heard Christina's strong negative reaction to it, I thought, why would anyone be opposed to getting money? That seems like seems great. If if Bill Gates wanted to give like white Hispanic guys a billion dollars, I wouldn't ask questions. You just take it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I and and I say this, and I've edit, I edited it, you know, loosely uh, that uh, that segment. I'm still not totally sure what the initiative does <laughs> and why my stepmother is opposed to it um to be fair to her she did not have her notes at the time <laughs> this this and comes the, up multiple the, times at the end if, if you are going to listen to this segment which is upcoming um stay tuned for the end where we find christina uh, <laughs> Her, her notes, because they turn out not to be quite as extensive as we originally thought. And remember, when you listen to this, we were it was it was the end of the night and all that implies when it her. comes to a Thanksgiving where you've been drinking all day and doing other stuff. So so we're going to do that for the first segment. I actually think when my brother, the, the, the David that is referred to most of the time in that segment, he comes out. He he uh, he's very funny in it. I think my daughter shows pretty well in her very brief cameo. But um, yeah, Christina and I were a little maybe too far gone. Well, it's, we'll leave it's it up a- to the listener. It was wonderfully, wonderfully substance-free. They keep threatening to get into a discussion, and they never, they they can never actually find find their way. I was telling, as I was telling Tamler, that it's like a break dancer who's preparing to dance, but the whole time that's all he's doing is like running around in a circle. Like that's, but it's very much in the tradition of the very bad wizard special Thanksgiving special. So I like I my favorite part is when Christina uh, pulls out her huge dick and slaps you in the face with it by asking you how many Twitter followers you have. <laughs> that was low. <laughs> that was some wicked stepmother shit right there. 
I did throw a a batting practice fastball. Uh, (laughs) But yes. After that segment, we are going to return to the glorious Borges abundant well to mix a bunch of metaphors um, (laughs) and talk about what, what, after doing a little research, seems to be one of his lesser known stories. Um, yeah. The Zahir. But if it's lesser known, it's still r- rich with all sorts with, of um, possibilities and ways of understanding it. And I'm excited to talk about it. And you know what we are? We're now Borges hipsters. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you like uh, li- the Library of Babel? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> okay. I used to be into that, you know, then I started. <laughs> anyway, so. Um, uh, stay tuned now for the drunken and other things Thanksgiving <laughs> segment, and we'll be back to talk about Borges. All right, welcome to the uh, very special annual Thanksgiving meltdown. Meltdown with Christina Hoff Summers, the factual feminist and the, the femsplainer, alarmist. Ready to... Catastrophize. Catastrophize. About the dystopian hellscape we inhabit, and Tamler won't admit it. For once in your life, you've had some drinks, you've had... I don't know what you've had. There's been a lot of stuff. There's yeah, been there's stuff. A lot of the, And your daughter's here hiding behind a safe... Uh, and all her it? friends have been, like, raiding my weed. So... <laughs> <laughs> all right. So here's the plan. We're going to read. Oh, I don't even have my phone. Oh, I have my phone. We we ask for questions they're, they're on questions Twitter, and then weird. those people shouldn't have been on. You got to speak into the mic. Those people shouldn't have been on Twitter because it was Thanksgiving, and it should be a screen-free Thanksgiving. Okay. But so I'm worried about my Twitter following. I think that Twitter is no longer allowing people to follow me because it's been frozen for I a week. I'm just telling you. I think that's what people say when all of a sudden, you know, their their star is fading a little bit. Uh, speak for yourself, Tamar. How many followers do you have? I, oh, shit. Just give me a like ballpark. <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, lower than what you have. Okay. Fewer. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to take questions. We're also going to do a special segment this year and this year only where I've I, I'm like, we're going to inhabit each other's so position. So you do the dystopian hellscape, and then I, I'm going to be the skeptic. And So just for the record, Christina has been preparing for this and has detailed notes, <laughs> and she's going to have her internet weirdo followers like e- tw- tweeting me after this saying, dude, you got destroyed by Christina. <laughs> that, that happens every year. You're no, a little Gamergate-like incel wannabes. They're not even incel. And you have very bad... Very bad wizard. You got destroyed, dude. And I can tell by the questions they ask. These are not normal people. All they right. listen to you guys and they say, oh, okay, here's a typical question. This is your follower. I have my question for you. Ask, oops, ask him who he likes better, Dave Chappelle or that, can I say that on the podcast? That's up to you. This is one of your... Okay, this is okay. Alt right. No, it's your follower. Ask him or her. What are your pronouns? What are your preferred pronouns? He, him. He, him. Okay, ask him whether he likes Dave Chappelle. Ask. He doesn't even know who I am. Well, this is just him to say. Your name is Tamler. He doesn't have a picture, by the way. That is a girl's name. 
And how have you coped with that? Like, just just tell us. Be open with the public. I, it's like I'm like a boy named Sue. Yeah. Like, okay. It made me tough. Well, tough enough to answer this question. Did you like Dave Chappelle or that chick from Tasmania? Well, uh, I don't know who the chick or the blank from Tasmania. Uh, I don't know who that is. You don't know who Nanette is? No. What is it? Hannah Gadsby. Don't know. You don't know? See, he's a low-information podcaster. All right, so is that your question? No. I prefer right. Dave Chappelle versus someone from Tans- Tasmania. All right, so you give so a here's question. My, who's the next racist she'll embrace after Milo and Andy Nyo? Nyo? Oh. oh, so you can't pronounce Vietnamese names? That's already no. a sign that you need no. more workshops. Andy No. Andy No is Vietnamese. How's he a racist? Oh, I guess in your world. All right, this you have to answer this. Would you rather be always slightly sweaty or slightly itchy? Okay, you got to report this person to Twitter. These questions are aggressive. All right, you ask a question then. You're not answering. You haven't answered a single question. You're dodging the questions. What has gone wrong with Democrats? Why have they lost the faith of the people they once championed? Okay. Who are those people? Oh, like, like in the like, middle. Like, oh, because okay. they're like like Hillary, like Northeast elite establishment, like go to uh, Martha's Vineyard and like they've forgotten about them and they make fun of them in popular culture. And so, what you know, you and then about? then we have Joker. Who, so who are you supporting for president? Bernie. Oh, my God. OK. OK. Hear me out on this. Though. All right. All right. Let's see why. And I have notes on this somewhere, but I lost them. Okay. <laughs> you prepare for this. I prepared on the Bernie question. <laughs> so are you against fracking? No, here's what I want for, like, for, okay, number one, first Jewish president. It'd yeah, be fun. That'd be fun. Larry David, four years doing Bernie as president. That would be hilarious. It'd be fun. And Not as many wars. As your neocon AEI, like, let's just spread democracy in the Middle East. No, they're not saying that now. They've changed. You were a, you supported the, the war, I think. Admit it. Do you and then you, so you're a Yang Gang person, right? Because that's all the Gamergate dudes that they love you, and now you're on, on board. They love me, and I love them. And he's the perfect candidate. And if you would listen to him and pay attention, you would be supporting him. Bernie, that's outrageous. He's against... Uh, he, you, what is you, that? That's our bird clock. Oh, that, I guess your followers our know Bernie about Our Bernie bird that. clock. Don't you want someone that's sympathetic to capitalism, like Yang, but who also is humane? I like Yang. Okay, so... Let's agree on Yang for right now. All right, should we play each other's side? Yeah. All right. Okay. You want to start? Okay. So, my fair lady. So, so Christina... <laughs> You're all upset now because they've changed the ending of My Fair Lady to make it, you know, more empowering for women, which, you know, so that seems pretty good. Uh, what, why did you get all freaked out because they changed the ending and made it about girl power and she doesn't get together with Henry Higgins, she marches out and everything's anger, anger, anger. My name is Christina Hoff Summers, and I'm the factual feminist, and I work for the American Enterprise Institute. I think that the people who are attacking musicals and trying to change the endings... Uh, did you see Inku Kang's review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It's disgraceful. She- okay. All right. I'm Tamler, and all right, that's my stepmom, and she's like, Whatever. And 
you know, it's not going well. <laughs> uh, this was better on paper. It was better on paper. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, this is just looking at like, so we there are people here, and we've never, and had... they're like, that's a very gloomy, depressed. <laughs> It's right now. It's just they they look they look, they look worried, embar- embarrassed for us. And all right. So let's get real. Melinda Gates has just given a mi- uh, not a million let's, let's get real. <laughs> Melinda Gates. Is that no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think those words have ever like that no. sequence of words has never been spoken. She's given a billion dollars. <laughs> yes. To address inequities, ongoing inequities in the United States. So you are against that. And she wants no. She wants to fast track. I wrote her. I, I like took notes, but I can't find them. She wants to fast track the careers of women in key areas: American entertainment, government, and technology. Fast track their careers with a billion dollars. What's she going to do? And I am going to make a factual feminist addressing her and suggesting that the money could be better spent because it's not because of prejudice and discrimination. That doesn't explain the gaps in entertainment. It's not the solution. It's not something we need money for. And I, and, and what's going to happen is I'm going to write this and then I'll send it to you what you think. And you'll just say, Oh, come on, Christina, don't do this. Don't do this. You tried to stop the factual feminist. I don't think I tried to stop the factual feminist, but let, hold on. I have a devastating reply to what you're saying. Okay. I just have to check my notes. Uh, your Melinda <laughs> Gates notes. I think you should talk to your favorite boys, Yoel and Mickey, and they will tell you, they will give you some way of addressing Melinda Gates by uh, and give and telling and her that the, the, the data that they're relying on is wrong. But what they won't be doing is questioning the very methods that psychology uses to even get at these kinds of questions. And you're Melinda saying they're Gates apologists fu- for the Gates family? Yeah, kind of, maybe. Who? Oh, Yoel and Mickey? Yoel, oh, God, they love that. the Gates. I'm not saying that. They go to Davos and, like, hang out with and Melinda Aspen. Gates. And they're, like, in hot tubs with Melinda Gates. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and uh, the Idaho one, Sun Valley. You know, they show more respect for your stepmother than you do. And they, they, they've helped me. And you should say nice things about your stepmother. I love my stepmother. But yeah. stepmothers get bad press. And talk about an oppressed group who's mistreated and misunderstood in literature. And I want that to be added to a group of people that are disempowered under patriarchy. Because you never hear about stepfathers. Think about it. Well, you do, but well, they're, they're usually molesters. like molesting their kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of true. <laughs> Here's the thing: I think we can agree on. We agree that there are annoying critics, critics of of art right now. They politic they oh, politicize yeah, yeah. things they shouldn't politicize. They make they forget that that a work it's of a art work. is a work of and actual complicated. art. And it's not only about representation and, and identity. Today, you made me. She was following me around my house as I'm trying to get ready for Thanksgiving with a Slate podcast with podcaster Inku Kang, and I apologize if I'm getting that wrong. Um, The Slate spoiler special of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and she's saying something. It just, like, I don't know. It sort of, like, makes me a little bit sad because I feel like if you took away all of the Tarantino trappings, this could basically be, like, Charles Bronson movie or sort of, like, an NRA movie, you know, like the... Okay, uh, that's what she said. It could be... She said 
that Once Upon a Time in in Hollywood is like an NRA movie. Well, so that's not the part part you played. And you defended it, and you said, I think I agree with her. No, the part that you you played, I totally agree with her. She said it's about the transferring of Hollywood from, like, the Steve McQueens to the the 70s kind of actor. And that is, it is about that passage. She compared it to the NRA. Answer the question. Did you think it was, like, a a film that was underwriting the NRA? Was it a MAGA hat movie? (laughs) Did you set that up? Did you you prompt that? You (laughs) She absolutely did. It was kismet. This the is truth, not fair. No, truth, yeah. no. To your truth Twitter, and your, podcasting. To your, and like, he's going to edit this out. It happens every bro, year. Gamer bro 82 or whatever. Like, it's not totally fair because she had everything, like, no, I didn't, queued up. No, he's snowflake and I didn't adjacent, even, and you've got to be <laughs> open about it, and... I'm here, and it's an intervention, and a lot of your followers, very bad wizard followers, want this. They want you to acknowledge that there's some, it's a dystopian hellscape out there in the culture. That's what I'm trying to say. All I'm saying is that uh, people are allowed to have their takes and opinions about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and there are some people who view it in a way that I think is not the right way of understanding art. Although, by the way, I like that critic. I like in Kukang. I like uh, her take. Her, her, her vocal fry. Yeah. Careful. He, Watch yeah, it. Yeah, see, he can't say anything because you can't make fun of women's voices. Except you made fun of mine. There I, was like some OK Boomer stuff going on. I think that... Uh, that uh, <laughs> what are you talking about, dear? Find your words, find your words, and no slurring. Um, yeah, so the uh, Melinda Gates thing again, yeah, let's well, go back let's to Melinda. Track, let's fast track the career. <laughs> All right, what's women next in- on your list? <laughs> um, okay, what? Oh, David, we have to bring David in, yeah, David. And he was supposed to do some tone policing because yeah, I've been, he's been insulted. At all. And he's supposed to also fluff and, and be fluff, the hype man. And hype because right. of a world you created and a world you... No, it's not that you... You just thought... No. What? David was supposed to fluff me. Okay. That's why it didn't go <laughs> well. I thought I did. Fluff him up. <laughs> so, David, sources, trusted sources have said, and this I, I heard this on a podcast, that you sent four dick pics to Amy Klobuchar. Oh, come on. He's a teacher. You're you can't have that on that, a podcast. This is, right. this is right on the heels of your van incident. So there's two things about Amy Klobuchar. Amy, they can't hear you. Speak. Have you seen the video of her throwing the binder at her legislative aide? You like that. Yeah. Like, that's hot, yeah. I think. Yeah. And she eats her salad with a comb, which I like. There's a whole... Amy Klobuchar on yeah. Pornhub. It's yeah. like number one. The algorithm has it go like straight to Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> <laughs> wait, why? No, wait, but he didn't say, you're the one that sent the pics. No. You pics? Called, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that was me. But oh, oh it was David. <laughs> I have no, well, why would I send them? Who, like, who would you send them to? Who would like, you send Kamala them to? Kamala Harris? No. She, uh, oh, no, I know. No, because I'd be put in jail for like 45 years for like, and she'd get me on like <laughs> possession of weed. <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, I like now, her. Yeah. But, yeah, except for the. No, Assad she's awesome. The love affair with like Assad. Affair, I, again, that's hot. That's hot, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of. Dictators are hot. So we're, I, we're a pro Tulsi Gabbard family here, so. Not me, necessarily. 
Can we go back to the fluffing? Like, yeah. We were happier talking about the fluffing. Okay, and, fluff yes. him up. Fluff yeah. him up. Well, no, I did. And but how happened? does he need a constant fluffing like throughout and, the podcast? And now I just want to say that our, my beloved granddaughter, older. Eliza, who introduces the podcast so people know her. Oh, yeah, Eliza. And her, her therapist gave her a safety ball. Safety ball. How do you describe that ball? Eliza, come and tell us. And bring the ball. It's a big blue yoga ball. I just, I just want to say I feel very uncomfortable and unsafe in this household, and this ball is the only thing keeping me from going insane. Okay, that so. was a plea for help. Please, and this is all part. Please help me. <laughs> I don't think it was a plea for help. She, no, because she was behind the ball. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So she I'm was still saying, hiding behind the ball. I'm Eliza, too afraid to come out behind Can it. you say that into the mic? Because that was. Yeah. yeah. Here. And I want to use Just come out from behind the ball. The come room. out from behind the ball. Please, please. <laughs> you can live with Izzy and I me. Know, I'll only come if I can bring the ball. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So this didn't go that well. Any last thoughts? Okay, last question. Okay. What is it like to have Tamler as your... Okay. Oh, wait. What, okay, okay, this is from a follower, and it's a legitimate What question. is it like to have Tamler as your stepson, and why is it terrible? Oh, it's not terrible. He's the most, he's the most wonderful stepson you, anyone could ever have. I love him dearly. I just want to... If I could just arrange his thoughts and make him a little more concerned about... Issues that concern the intellectual dark web. Well, thank you, uh, Christina. It's always good to have you. All right, so we're back very briefly because we have found Christina's notes that she has prepared um, for Uh, this podcast. And there's like like a whole notebook, but a lot of the pages are blank. I would not have been this intimidated had I not, had I seen the notes beforehand. (laughs) So here's one. It's the whole note card just says, alt right, hi, Charlie. (laughs) Do you have any explanation for this card? It's not. Is that my handwriting? (laughs) This one. Alt right, hi, Charlie. Here's one. Stiglitz. Stiglitz. Yes, from, I had a point to make. From Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Melinda Gates. Most of them say Melinda Gates. <laughs> which to- oh, here's another Melinda Gates. <laughs> to, dis- <laughs> to dismantle berries. Yeah, there was a part about a, ba- a berry farm that she funded. Oh, okay, Rumpelstiltskin and <laughs> pantsuits. I had a point about the homeless, and it was a killer point. So you were intimidated by my Every notes. into Creole. Well, no, no okay. That's, what does that say? So I don't want to bring it up. Okay. But there was an incident involving you. Can I say the word? Yes. I can't say it. Creole. Do you know what a dream catcher is? Oh. Uh. <laughs> you jerked off into a dream catcher. I made love to the when dream you were catcher. A teenager. <laughs> I, did, I you were accused of it by your best friend, who said it, I I don't know what to make of it, but I put it in my notes. <laughs> oh, the blind audition study. Well, you didn't ask me any questions. I just dismantled the blind orchestra audition study in the Wall Street Journal and on the Factual Feminist, and I don't get one question from you about it because I, I've never heard of it. Okay, you've read it. You didn't read it. But it's well, like a behind a paywall, and you wouldn't send it to me. Well, I think I did read it actually. It was good, and you had uh, help from. Don't say that. I told them I wouldn't say a word. Oh, really? I don't know. Careful. This is a good segue into the Helen Keller joke. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> Why couldn't Helen Keller drive? Why? Because she was a woman. <laughs> I, I got destroyed. You're right, Gamer42. And, and thank, thank you, Charlie. <laughs> Hi, Charlie. <laughs> All right. Hi, Charlie. Join us next Thanksgiving on Very Bad Wizard. All right, well, that was another Thanksgiving episode. I hope you enjoyed it if you listened to it. And now we will be right back to talk about Borges' story, The Zahir, El Zahir. El Zahir. Okay, let's take a quick break so I can tell you about one of the ultimate life hacks. We're all busy people. Even academics are busy, as they never tire of telling you on Twitter. It's hard to find the time to sit down and read more and learn more about the world. Well, there's an app that solves this problem, and it's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique, or you might even say it's just unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health to history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from the bestseller lists, as well as classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. One of the things I like about Blinkist Even if you want to read hold books, like I do, at least in theory, Blinkist can give me the main points that help me evaluate which books I want to make time to read in full later. Most popular books include Becoming by Michelle Obama, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolff, The 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss, although if you can get a 4-Hour Work Week, you may not need Blinkist, ironically, Um, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goldman. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash VeryBadWizards, try it free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash VeryBadWizards to start your free seven-day trial. Again, you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash VeryBadWizards. Thanks to Blinkist for sponsoring this episode. Tripping off the beat, kinda dripping off the meat grinder. Heat niner, pimping, stripping, soft, sweet minor. China was a neat sign of trouble with the strict digits. Doom, double do bubble lip, subtle lisp, midget. Borderline schizo, sorta fine, tits dough, porter wine, hoarder grind, quarter to nine, let's go. Ever since 10 11, glad she made a brethren. Then his last down, seven alligator, seven at the gates of heaven, knocking, no answer. Slow dancer, hopeless romancer, dopest flow stanzas. Yes, no, villain, metal. Face the Destro, guess so, still incredible in escrow. Just say ho, I'll test the yayo. Wild West, I'll fest y'all best to lay low. Hey bro, day glow, set the bet, pay dough before the cheddar get away. Best to get Mako. The worst hated god who perpetrated art favors demonstrated in the perforated rod labors. In all quad flavors, large savers.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we like to thank all of our listeners for getting in touch with us in all the different ways that you do, all the emails that you sent us, the ways you interact with us on Twitter, on Reddit, on Instagram. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the subreddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at verybadwizards. Tweet us at peas at Tamler or the Very Bad Wizards account at verybadwizards. Rate us on iTunes, subscribe to us on Spotify, which I think does something. We're not sure. And <laughs> um, and yeah, we just really love the interaction. We love the community. We'll hop on to uh, Reddit sometimes. We respond to some emails, but unfortunately it has to be a small percentage because there's all there's a ton of emails that we should be responding to in our regular lives that we have trouble getting to. So thanks to all of you. It is a true honor to, to be connected to so many people through this podcast. Yeah, I love our audience. And, and you know what we never say? Tell a friend about us if you want. You know, like a lot yeah. of people email us and say that they, they put somebody else onto it. And I like that. It feels like a nice, a nice way to grow our audience. Uh, if you want to support us in more tangible ways, which we always appreciate very, very much, you can go to our, you can go to our support page um, on verybadwizards.com. You'll see a link uh, to support us, or even in your podcast player of choice. Um, you can from there go to our Patreon account. We really appreciate our Patreon supporters. We're going to soon record another episode um for our supporters or two dollars and up supporters on dark we've been threatening to do it but i've worked my way halfway through the second season and i'm almost there we'll talk about it oh god and it gets really good the second half of the second season is really good no good sixth episode is the best episode like i've seen on tv all year yeah, yeah we'll talk about it so uh so yes thank you to all our patreon supporters you can go support us there and if not you can go uh give us a one-time or recurring donation on paypal um we we very very much appreciate it uh, we put a lot of soul and hard work and effort into this and we don't expect that we deserve money but we really thank everybody who who takes their time and money to support us yes thank you all all right. Well, let's just start with general impressions of the story. What was what was yours? So, um, when I first, I, I like, I was confused at first. Like, it's a it was a hard story to get into because it sort of switches gears very fast. Um, and, you know, it goes from it's it's first person Borges as he does often, uh, but probably unreliable uh, narrator. And uh, he's talking about a woman that he knows who died. And then all of a sudden he's talking about the Zahir. Well, well, first he talks about the Zahir and then a woman who dies. And then you never hear about the woman who dies. So I had to read this two, two and a half times to, to like actually get my bearings. But when I did, it leaves so much room for interpretation that this could, it, it could be a lot of things. I, Borges is really giving us something, I think, to... Yeah. to chew on 
I think this is true of a lot of them. You know, they all have this central metaphor, and the metaphor is it's the thing that ends up kind of destroying the characters. But this metaphor, unlike the others, has almost limitless ways of interpreting it. Um, whereas the Garden of the Port Forking Paths, there, there's, it, there's a way to even begin trying to understand that metaphor. But in this case, it's just a coin that you can't stop thinking about. It's a more <laughs> mundane metaphor, but because yeah. it's a more mundane metaphor, it is even more open to interpretation than the Library of, of Babel. I was thinking about it, like, if you were just reading it, I, I don't, and, and you didn't know that you had to discuss it with somebody, yeah. then you might think, what, what was that, you know, yeah. and, and yep. just stop. Like, the, like a lot of Borges stories, it's difficult, but then once you start actively thinking about it and hopefully talking about it, because I haven't talked about it with anybody yet, like I think yeah. it's gonna, it opens up in a really beautiful way. So I'm a bit, I'm a fan. When you're comparing it to other stories, it there, there is to me that there's the storytelling Borges, where you know he actually has a narrative structure, of like some of his earlier stories. You know, it's like about a person, and this happens to the person, and the Garden of Forking Paths is very much like that. Then there's the like more philosophical, like the Talonuk Bar. It's like fiction, but but fiction as an excuse to talk about something like a a, a real philosophy, like yeah. Um, and this one is is like neither of those. It's almost a story. It's almost a philosophy, but it's it's more just about some mystical idea and and uh, hints at 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 mysticism and infinity in a way that, that I found satisfying. So here are some similarities I, I noted with the other stories and also some differences. Like the library of, like all of them actually, there's this kind of weary defeatism in the prose. It's, it's yeah. told in this, with this kind of fatalistic, pessimistic, backwards-looking attitude that... That seems like that's his prose style to the extent that he that he has one. And that's definitely here. There's also this threat of obsession. There is just an obsession that's the central quality of this character, Borges, that we get. And again, like Talon Ukbar, this all-consuming form of idealism. There's like a specter of idealism that's all-consuming where all particulars have lost their meaning and they're just kind of subsumed into this, in this case, this coin or the Zahir, depending on what the Zahir, how it manifests itself. Um, there's so many philosophical and religious references and yeah. that to even try to track all those down and what what of them are real and important and one of you know which of them are red herrings it, it's it's very it's you know it's 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 just packed with that in terms of the key differences number 1 there's a woman in it and <laughs> there hasn't been a woman in any of or even like it's not even clear that women exist in the other stories <laughs> Um, and, 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 you know, you could definitely interpret this as a love story. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, that's something I want to talk about. And then the last one that I'll note, the last difference is 
in the other stories where the character becomes obsessed, it, it's they make the they have agency. They make the choice um, to do that. Like all the people in the weird cults in the Library of Babel, or the the narrator in the Garden of the Forking Paths. In this story, it is not the protagonist's fault that he is thrust into this world of inescapable obsession. Now, we can talk about whether that's true, whether, you know, there's a sense in which you can find agency in, in bringing about his, his end, but... Uh, but I thought that was a little different than some of the other stories where it seems like the characters do have more agency. So you want yeah. to go through the story, the whatever plot that there is? Yeah, I want to. I, we, we didn't really say we just jumped into talking about the coin like the, the titular Zahir is um, an object that has been become manifest in various different ways. It's been different things in history, but it's a singular object that whenever somebody perceives it, they become completely obsessed and they can't stop thinking about it. And that's what the Zahir is. It's been different things at different times. In this story, the Zahir is a 20-cent Argentinian peso that Borges gets as loose change. Should we just and... read that opening? Because I think that, that it's it's kind of beautifully succinct the way it introduces. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, in Buenos Aires, the Zahir is a common 20 centavo coin into which a razor or letter opener has scratched the letters NT and the number two. The date stamped on the face is 1929. In Guharet, at the end of the 18th century, the Zahir was a tiger. In Java, it was a blind man. In the Surakarta Mosque, stoned by the faithful. In Persia, an astrolabe that Nadir saw ordered, thrown into the sea. In the prisons of Mahdi in 1892, a small sailor's compass wrapped in a shred of cloth from a turban that Rudolf Karl von Slatten touched in the synagogue in Corbora, according to Zotenberg, a vein in the marble of one of the 1,200 pillars. Um, and, and then he, he gives other examples. Today is the 13th of November. Last June 7th at dawn, the Zahir came into my hands. I am not the man I was then, but I am still able to recall and perhaps recount what happened. I am still, albeit only partially, Borges. That's the opening yeah. paragraph. And and I like I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? Like it's a he just j jumps right in. By the way, I, I can't I can't not uh, correct your pronunciation of Cordova because I have family that lives there and it's just my moral duty. <laughs> what did I say? Um, Corbo something or other. Cordova. Yeah. Um, uh, that's just my neuroticism. Um, no, it's family honor. <laughs> It is. <laughs> um, so, so you're thrust into this, like recounting of an object. You're like, wait, what? It's a coin with an engrave. Like, what's the purpose of the engraving? Why is he talking about a coin, like a twenty cent coin? And then he's like giving all of these really different examples. Like, what? And and I was thinking to myself, he's saying it was a tiger, it was a blind man, it was a small compass. And I'm like, what was a small compass? Like, what was a tiger? You know, I'm I'm confused, and I have to. I I think that he is purposefully confusing the reader, um, and he ends that paragraph with saying that he's not the person that he was, 
he's only partially Borges. And I feel like that unit of confusion ends nicely with that. Like I, you know, he, there is, there is, it's communicating something, some feeling of like, I don't know, it, it already kind of distresses me to read that. Yeah, because we have no reference. We don't even know that it's a thing that people can't stop thinking about. Yeah. We only know that it's Zahir, but it has no referent beyond the different ways that it manifests itself other right. than, uh, yeah. So so I agree. It is completely bewildering. And if you think you're going to get some help in the next paragraph, <laughs> you're then, not. <laughs> it is like it, like the next paragraph. I was like, w- like, I honestly, when I when I first read it, I was like, why would anybody recommend this story? I don't understand anything that's going on. All of a sudden, he just jumps into a completely different story. Teodelina Villar died on the 6th of June. Around 1930, her various likenesses filled the smart reviews. You have a different translation. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I do have a different, yeah. Um, and he goes on to describe a woman. Like, and the description of this woman is interesting. Very like, interesting. It, it's, and- it's hard to capture what he was trying to say about her. Like, it took me some effort, and I'm still not sure that I know uh, what he's trying to say. Um, it sounds like he's insulting her while trying to compliment her. So so let's talk about what and see if we agree, because he gives these uh, these analogies of Jews in the Mishnah trying to figure out what the rules are um, and also Chinese um, trying to come up with rituals and and codes and rules for every situation. She is a fashion model. And she tries to do that for fashion modeling. She tries to wear all the things that are right at that moment fashionable. She tries to affect the kind of gaze that fashion models at that time are affecting. And she tries to go to all the places where a fashion model ought to go at that time. And she does this successfully um for a while but then in the war she gets tricked into buying a hat that that she's told <laughs> is is all the rage in Paris but it turns out they're not wearing it in Paris this chapeau and so that that's kind of the end of her yeah, and and she then got, she got conned into thinking that these cylindrical hats were in style and yeah. because there was very little uh communication with Paris because it was being occupied by the Germans she didn't know, but she found out later that it was actually like whack, like somebody just lied to her about them. And she pretty much never recovers from that. Uh, it, we also learned that she stopped having money and they had to move to a, a, a lesser part of Buenos Aires, I guess, a more middle class part of Buenos Aires. And she's getting older. And so she just retires. She quits. If she can't pursue this ideal that she's been pursuing because she no longer has the money and the youth and the access to information, I guess, then she's just not going to do it. Yeah. And, so. So, yes. And then and then she just dies. And and uh, well, before I get to what Borges says about her when she dies, um, it is interesting, this description comparing her to the Jews and the Chinese uh, people who are searching for perfection in every single facet of their life. They want to know exactly how to live their life. And that description, it's almost, you know, it's almost like the a, a, a 
we probably know people like this. It's almost like a religious sickness to be that obsessed with how to do every single little thing. It's like a OCD religion, right? Scrupulosity. And she is like that for, <laughs> for fashion, yeah. for that aspect of her life. It's everything to her. I mean, my the metaphor that I was thinking of was like Plato's forms. She is trying yeah. to achieve the form of being a fashion model. And that is what she is. That's what she's chasing. And, if, and like all of the forms, it's not going to be fully accessible because this is real life. But when she realizes that, she she kind of she abandons it. So it is that right. kind of idealism. Just like it's the, a, the perfect is the enemy of good. The, the desire for perfection becomes paralyzing. So she just gives up. My translation says she chose to retire rather than to bungle. Besides, it pained her to have to compete with giddy girls. But the sinister apartment in that, what on Araos, Araos yeah. was too much to bear, and then she just died on June sixth. Yeah, you want to read what he's what? Yeah, so I'll read uh, um, it, at least my translation. He says, "Shall I confess that moved by the sincerest of Argentine passions, snobism, I was enamored of her, and that her death moved me to tears." That was a question. Perhaps the reader has already suspected as much. And I'm like, no, I, no, I did not suspect as much. <laughs> he just told me about this woman who's a fashion model who's like super concerned with it. And, and now he tells me that he was in love with her. It's not even clear to me that he knew her. No. Right? He was at her wake, we yeah. learn. But it's not and, and seems to at least be aware of her sister and maybe know right. one of her friends. We find right. out later. But... Uh, mine says, first of all, it's a snobbery rather than snobism, <laughs> but otherwise, and then says, I was in love with her, not I was yeah. enamored with her, which I actually think is a different, enamored yeah. makes it sound like, like you can be enamored with somebody that you don't know. Yeah. And I, it, it's, it's because the Spanish word enamorado means both enamored and in love. So then they talk about her at the wake. Also very confusing. Yeah. Uh, because it says at wakes the progress of corruption allows the dead person's body to recover its former faces. What do you think he means I, by this? I was so I was thrown off by this because it sounds like okay, so he's described her as somebody who is constantly changing her face in order to conform to the to the fashion of the day, like constantly trying different things aesthetically to to be to be whatever she needed to be at the time. And it sounds to me like what he's saying is that when dead, she went to her default face, you know, like when she, her effort was no longer available to change her appearance. And so I, I don't know about the corruption thing. The, the Doesn't it also make it seem like she was younger? Like, is it just a kind of a makeup thing that they were able to you know yeah that's why i don't know yeah I, like it i don't know if it, it's uncovering her true form or the the makeup artists made her look in a particular way like how, it, how she yeah. it says she magically became, became what she had been 20 20 years, years before. before her features recovered the authority that arrogance money youth the awareness of being the creme de la creme restrictions a lack of imagination and stolidity can get you know, and this is why I love discussing these things, but I'm just now thinking that it is a particular kind of, of um, 
irony that somebody who tried so hard to look good and to look in a particular way never quite achieved what the mortician did. Yeah, right. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They achieved it in death. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, like somebody else did her makeup and made her look hot. It's yeah. just dead hot. Like, like I, he sounds like he's saying, like, I'd hit that because he says no version of this face, which had so unsettled me, will be as memorable as the one I now saw. She achieved perfection in death. Okay, so next day, or sorry, no, that that night of the wake, he goes to a to a tavern and is given change, and in the change is that Zahir, the twenty centavo coin with the letters NT scratched on it and the number two. And just almost immediately it starts to like occupy him. But it's interesting yeah. the way it does at first. I'll tell you what I think. So just like right after he gets it, he starts thinking about just coins in general and the ramifications of coins. And he says the coin becomes a symbol for all coins. And he starts thinking of all the different famous coins and religion and literature and history. And as he's doing that, he, he's walking around Buenos Aires and he realizes that he's walked around in a circle. So it's <laughs> like a, he's walking around in the shape of a coin. And then he gets more philosophical and abstract about it. He thinks of coins as as being not anything in it in itself. There's no intrinsic value, but there it's an opportunity. It's like a gateway to possible futures, um, which you can use to buy music or coffee or a book by Epictetus that teaches us to hold things like coins in contempt, he says. And then he kind of concludes this part with the coin is a symbol of our free will. Yeah, and super interesting. That's so that's where he is with the coin at this point, thinking about it, the, the, the philosophical implications of the coin. As the story progresses, it will narrow to really just the image of the coin itself. Um, right. But at this point, he, it's very grandiose the way he's thinking about the Zahir. Right. The Zahir, when he's describing. Yeah, it's like the coin is a microcosm. Uh, that represents something much bigger. But then, as you say, it starts narrowing. Like it start, you know, it it captures him and uh, and then just almost like ch- choking his vision slowly. But let's talk about that free will thing because I, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Because coins represent something that you can buy, something that you can do. They're essentially representing an act that you have not yet committed. And he says, determinists don't believe in, in possible acts, right? Like there's no, right. He even describes like, you know, the way in which philosophers describe free will, which is that you could have done otherwise. He says in my translation, the determinists deny that there is such a thing as a single possible act in the world. That is an act which might have happened. And so he, it's almost like the coin refutes determinism. Yeah. He describes it, right? Like right. the coin, that's not true because I can use this coin to buy either the bronze record or a book or a cup of coffee. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, thus I refute determinism. <laughs> right. It's a repertory of 
possible futures. Money's abstract, I repeated to himself. Money is future time. He's holding in his hand a, a universe of infinite possibilities. So he sounds excited, right? He sounds he sounds like this is good, right? He's he's happy yeah. that he has this thing. And the way he's thinking about the coin is it's not, you know, groundbreaking, but it's interesting. It's interesting yeah. to think of coins this way and to, you know, something as common cuz I get the sense that this is just a common coin in Buenos Aires, it's like a, it's like getting a quarter or something yeah. like that. And yet he's starting to really imagine what it means to have a coin and what it could represent and all the different coins in history and literature and their significance. And, and he's just kind of walking around drunk, thinking of these thoughts, like that's, that's all good at this point. Uh, yeah. he, he falls asleep and dreams that he was a pile of coins guarded by a griffin. Yeah. Do you know what a griffin is? I've meant to look it up, but I did. Uh, yeah, a griffin is that mythological creature that is like um, uh, an eagle's, I think it's an eagle's head and a lion's body, maybe? Yeah, lion's body, eagle's head. So I don't know what it represents. In fact, there are a lot of allusions to mythology from all over the world that, as you said earlier, it would have taken me, uh, you know, a couple of days to try to track down every reference that he makes. Yeah. And, I, you know, I respect Borges enough to know that he he wouldn't include a reference to a griffin without meaning something. But I honestly was like, I don't have time to figure out what he means by the griffin. <laughs> like, There's so he just piles so many of these things into his stories, knowing, I think, that unless uh, uh, you're a Borges scholar, you can't track all of these things yeah, down. You true, just can't. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is once again sponsored by one of our favorite organizations, GiveWell.org. With the holiday season upon us, it's a great time to reflect on everything that we have. And if you're like me, feel a bit grateful for all of the luck that we have being born in the time and place that we've been born. Um, but that means that there are so many people out there in this world who have less and I don't know about you, but as I get older, I really want to make a difference. I'm at the point in my life where, I don't know, I think it's just my moral duty to seek out people to help with all of the wonderful things that I have, to reach out and, and help somebody much less fortunate than me. But it's hard to decide who to give to, right? So that's why I turned to GiveWell.org. These are Wonderful spreadsheet nerds. They've spent 20,000 hours each year researching which charities can do the most with your money. And I think it's a very reasonable thing to want your charitable donations to go as far as they possibly can. GiveWell's recommended charities work to prevent children from dying of cheaply preventable diseases and to help people in dire poverty. So some of the recommended charities can treat intestinal parasites for less than a dollar or provide a malaria treatment to a child for less than $10. They can even save a life for a few thousand dollars. To learn how much your good your donation could do by visiting givewell.org slash verybadwizards. Their recommendations are free for anyone to use and GiveWell doesn't take any cut of your donation. First time donors will have their donation matched up to $1,000 if they donate through givewell.org slash verybadwizards. So please, just if you care and you want to make a difference in this world, I think it's a complete no-brainer, and I think that our audience knows this very well, to go to givewell.org, check out the charities, 
you don't have to use them. You can just use their recommendations. But if you do want to sign up, perhaps for a recurring donation, something that you can just set and not even think about, you will be doing a great deal of good. So go to givewell.org slash verybadwizards and consider giving this holiday season. Thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. All right. So then things take a turn, um, a darker turn. Yeah. The next day, so he, the next day when he wakes up, he's just decided to get rid of it. And like, I'm not quite sure where it moved from like this world of possibilities to it unnerved him. Right. When he wakes up, he's just distressed. He wants to get rid of it. Maybe it's because he was in he was drunk. Now, like it's the next day. It's the hangover of the coin. He's, he's he, like <laughs> the coin has to do the walk of shame because poor his. <laughs> well, I mean, you could think of it like think of it as like a stone dorm room kind of thing. You're like, dude, have you ever thought about a coin? And then you're <laughs> yeah. like, it's fun. And then you go to sleep. And then if you wake up the next morning and you're still thinking about the coin, I could see how that would be distressing. Like, OK, yeah. last night was last night. Like we had a good talk. We had some good reflections. But but it's time to move on with my life. And he still can't get the coin out of his head. Yeah. And, and he, he says he looked at it. He looked at it. And there was nothing out of the ordinary about it except for those notch cuts that NT and the two. And so I can imagine thinking like, wait, why did I think like. So then he tries to he, he gets rid of it, I guess. It's not even totally clear, like what happens to the coin, right? Yeah. So he says, no, he does. He he uses it to buy something. But he says he wants this is kind of interesting. He says, he, you know, he could have buried it or hidden it in a library, but he doesn't want to. He wants to lose it. Like in the way that he found it, he wants to actually lose it. So. What he tries to do is lose himself in Buenos Aires by like not yeah. paying attention to the streets in which he's turning and not paying attention to any of the markings on the houses right. and going into a dive bar, ordering a drink and paying for it with the coin, half closing his eyes. He managed not to see the address on the house or the name of the street, goes home, takes a sleeping pill and slept easily. Sounds yeah. sounds like my night. <laughs> so he's like, he wants to forget the whole thing. And I guess it doesn't work because yeah. he says, until the end of June, I distracted myself by composing a tale of fantasy. Do we want to go into the tale itself? Uh, it's, it's, I don't think so. Like, I, I can't tell that it means anything. But what I do, I think, want to, the thing that did capture my, my attention is that he is. He is Borges. He's talking about himself in the first person. And so now he says to distract himself, he, Borges, the guy who's telling us about Borges, writes a story in the first person. So right now we have what Borges loves to do, right? He's popping down a level and telling us a story that he is writing in the first person. So it's it says it is written in the first person. But does it say that Borges is the protagonist? Oh, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. It's not it's not obvious. Right. Yeah. It's it's he just says the narrator is in the first person. You're right. That's that's uh, I filled that in my desire, my desire for, for meta. like another meta level. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in any case, he pops into this story um, yeah. and the story is uh, like just some mythological thing about a guy <laughs> in he's a sword. He's, he's guarding a treasure after killing yeah. his father. Turns out he's a snake and he's slain. Yeah, he's bringing in Norse mythology here, weirdly. Yeah. So, you know, he's going, 
in this story, he talks a, a lot about just different mythologies and, and like Islam, mysticism and Judaism. And here he is just so I, what I got from it, at least, was that. He's trying to distract himself from thinking of the coin. And the way that he does it is he writes a story that is about treasure and somebody trying to hoard the treasure. So it's like he can't really get it out of his head. Like he's he's even yeah. in his attempt to distract himself, he's writing a story about like money and coins. He also takes some funny, maybe self-deprecating shots at himself. He's is <laughs> in an increasingly tortured style, which might yeah. be a way of describing Borges. <laughs> Borges' prose style. The narrator praises the lustrousness and flexibility of his body, and then and then uh, in a net later he says, "I have said that composing that piece of trivial nonsense in the course of which." I interpolated with pseudo erudition a line or two from the <laughs> Fafsnal enabled me to put the coin out of my mind, but then it, he started to realize it, it didn't. And then he does this weird thing where he, he becomes confident that he can actually forget that coin. He says that some nights he felt so sure of being able to forget it that he voluntarily summons it to mind as if like testing himself as like, yeah. you know, like Gandhi sleeping with, with naked women in his bed to test his powers of chastity. He's like, well, I'm going to, th- I'll just think of the coin a little bit just so I can show that I can get rid of it. <laughs> but then he says he overdid it. <laughs> and, and he also just starts to tell himself that it's just like a coin. Uh, and he starts getting all these other coins to try to make himself forget that coin. <laughs> sort of the opposite of what he was doing at first, which is this coin is a symbol from all for all coins. Now he's yeah. trying to say, no, it's not. It's just that particular coin, and I can have another coin, and I can get that. You know, like they're they're it's yeah. the, and so, but he's but none of but it it doesn't work. I like to think that this is a shot at uh, when he says that he he did some frustrating experiments with Chilean five and cent five and ten centavo coins and with Uruguayan vinten. Like that's that's how Argentinian would totally take a pot shot at <laughs> Chilean Uruguay. This is some South American. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's like that's like some internal <laughs> beef shit. <right> there. <laughs> uh, then he goes to a psychiatrist. This is you know there's not many jokes. In, like outright <laughs> jokes in in Borges, but I I, re- I thought this is as close as we get. He says I did not com- confide the entire absurd story to him. I told him I was tormented by insomnia and that often I could not free my mind of an image of an object, uh, any random object, a coin, say. <laughs> and then that yeah. That's it. Like, yeah. That's how like he was embarrassed. It was just, just like just for a, example. Yeah, let's just call it a coin. For, uh, <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. And then he finds a book that reveals to him and to us what's going on, or at least yeah. what could be going on. Right. Because and at this be, point, we don't know. We, we have no idea. And in fact, it seems as if. Uh, he might not have known why he was being obsessed, even though he opens by describing that coin as the Zahir. It might just be that the knowledge that he gained from reading this book is allowing him to describe that it was the Zahir and, and he didn't really know. So I so think it's he, definitely that. Yeah. Because yeah, he's writing yeah. it after right. the events that he's describing. Yeah. So and after he read the book. That's right. So the belief in the Zahir is Islamic and apparently dates from the 18th century. In Arabic, Zahir means notorious, visible. In this sense, it is one of the 99 names of God. So, so there is in, in 
Islam, it is said that Allah has 99 names. And in fact, but a bitch ain't here. one. <laughs> All right, very good. Very good. I'm, I'm mad. I'm a little mad that I didn't. <laughs> you, you are totally, you're totally, you're, you, you fucked yourself. You realize that. <laughs> No, I know. You have blasphemed the name of God. <laughs> no, um, you did. That was bizarre. That wasn't me. <laughs> Zahir means, uh, is, is one of the names of God. And it, in fact, it is one of the 99 names. And, and yeah, mine says visible manifest evidence. Yeah, manifest is right. Manifest is actually, I think, the better translation. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting because the coin is manifest or a manifestation of a more general category of thing which is the zahir but yeah. here the zahir is the manifest of perhaps god yeah i was reading a little bit about the 99 names of of allah and the zahir name is name number 75 and apparently it is particularly difficult to know what exactly is being described by the zahir the manifestation of god it's apparently one of the more mysterious of the names mm-hmm. um so so yeah, it is. And this this gets back to sort of the the microcosm macrocosm. This this coin well, we will get to it. It's almost like the coin is meant to represent all things. Right? It's something like that. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it's um but but importantly, like I should say, he says that the, that he finds in this book that the zahir in Muslim lands people use that word to designate quote Beings or things which possess the terrible virtue of being unforgettable and whose image finally drives people mad. And that there's no escape from it. Yeah. It also says in this, it's, it's not just a book. It's people's accounts of other books and other yeah. myths. So there's this guy, Meadows Taylor, and then Taylor tells a story to Muhammad al-Yemeni of Fort William. <laughs> I love that detail. I know. Uh, Al-Yanimi said, there is no que- creature in the world that does not tend towards becoming a Zahir. Um, but that the all-merciful does not allow two things to be as I hear at the same time, since a single one is capable of entrancing multitudes. Anything, and, there are, and he added that there is always as I hear. He also noted that Allah was inscrutable. Yeah. That I, I take that to mean that anything can be as I hear. It's, it's not meaningful what the Zahir manifests itself as. It just, well, what do you think it means that all things t- tend towards becoming as I hear. Like, what does that mean? I had trouble uh, with that. Uh, yeah, mine says every created being tends towards I hear. So, I mean, I get, I don't know what he means, but I get this sense of, of uh, this pull that everything is trying to be the most important thing in the universe, but only yeah. one gets to be. Right. Everyone's trying to get chose, right? <laughs> and but then, and, the, only... and, and but it says creature, right? Not everything. And in fact, yeah, yeah, all, yeah, yeah. all the all the Zahir examples are not people, right? They're or, no, they're or even all... animals. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not they're all pa- pictures. Yeah, pictures yeah. of animals, but. Yeah, uh, the it, tiger. The description, by the way, of the tiger is is kind of cool. The guy who who painted yes. in his in his cell a tiger 
he was <laughs> intending to trace out a map of the world, but he just drew this monstrous image of tiger of a tiger with tigers fused in it. Like it's the, the description sounds pretty fucking. Cool. A, in, it, it was a tiger composed of many tigers in the most dizzying of ways. It was crisscrossed with tigers, striped with tigers, and contained seas and Himalayas and armies that resembled other tigers. And you know, I should say like. T- the tiger is something that Borges himself seems obsessed with. They come, they come up over and over again in all his writings, and and so that description of a of a, this beast of a tiger seems like that might be what haunts Borges himself. Right, and maybe he knows since this is a slightly later work of his, he knows that people know that about him. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So he says, over and over, I read Barlock's monograph. I cannot sort out my emotions. I recall my desperation when I realized that nothing could any longer save me. The inward relief of knowing that I was not to blame for my misfortune. The envy I felt for those whose Zahir was not a coin, but a slab of marble or a tiger. How easy it is not to think of a tiger, I recall thinking. Which is, <laughs> just seems deluded and also not... Also, like, exactly the opposite of, of his obsession, his Borges' his own obsession with tigers. Right. So maybe it's just a joke. Yeah. But in, and why would a tiger be less, you know, like it's it's a hilarious sort of, you know, counterfactual that I think captures something about like, you know, like when I'm having a problem and you're having a problem, I might think to myself, well, yeah, like I wish I had your problem. Mine is much, much more difficult. Like <laughs> I have to not think of a coin. All you have to do is not <laughs> yeah, think of a think tiger, tiger. interspersed. <laughs> yeah. So there's a kind of delusion there. Yeah, I think. Yeah, he's sure. already kind of yeah going a little bit crazy with it. <laughs> he um, also, and then he says, I also uh, recall the remarkable uneasiness I felt when I read the paragraph. One commentator of the Gulshan Iraz states that. He who has seen the Zahir shall soon shall see the rose and quotes a line of poetry interpolated into Atar's Asranama, the book of things unknown. The Zahir is the shadow of the rose and the rending of the veil. Like, so, I do not know. I'm sure he's this sounds like an allusion to to maybe the Virgin Mary. Um, who is often sort of associated with a rose and maybe a veil. I, but I'm not, I'm not at all clear what, what this means. Do you have any thoughts? Not yet. Although that's, I didn't know that about the Virgin Mary. And yeah. so that does relate to a kind of broader interpretation that I might want to spin. So I'll, yeah, we I'll haven't talked it. about what the NT stands for. And, and yes, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but sh- shout out, to the any audiobook narrator who has to read these stories and, <laughs> and look up how to pronounce these things because that cannot be an that yeah. is not an enviable task. Uh, all right, so then he he remembers that on the night of Teodolina Teodolina's wake, the, her sister wasn't there, and and then in October he ran into a friend of hers, and it turns out that she has been. In in a, in a asylum, and the nurses have to feed her. She do, and all she does is talk about a coin, and just like another this chauffeur that she also knows. Right. So this uh, thing is going around, fucking like you know, contagious. Right. It it can it can affect anybody who comes in contact with it. All right. Should we finish the summary and then and then go yeah. into? The I mean. Diff- Pretty much, he just says that 
the same fate of Ju this woman, Julia, who became very strange and they had to put her in a sanitarium, overtook him. So it's, it's a funny way of narrating it. He says, Julia's fate will have overtaken me before, before the 1948. year 1948. And yeah. we assume that this is before then. But I, I want to read he, this one passage, which I think is important. Yeah. I, I'm not sure when he's writing it. because, because yeah, uh, He's not predicting the future. I think he is. Is he? Yeah. Because he's saying yeah. that hasn't happened yet, and I can still walk around the streets. I don't have to feed myself yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, Donna, right, that's right. the last part of it. Yeah, you're, um, right, you're, right, you're right. But before that, he says, Time, which often softens recollections, only makes the memory of the Zahir all the sharper. First I could see the face of it, then the reverse. Now I see both sides at once. It is not as though the Zahir were made of glass, since one side is not superimposed upon the other. Rather, it is as though the vision were itself spherical, with the Zahir rampant in the center. Anything that is not the Zahir comes to me through a filter and from a distance. Teodelina's disdainful image, physical pain... And then he gives this Tennyson metaphor about a, if you could understand a single flower, you would understand the world. Um, but now this Zahir is a prism through which he sees everything and everything is receding more and more in the distance and everything is becoming more the Zahir until finally it is everything um, that it's the only thing that he will think about or be or understand. Right. Um, and he is here now explicitly appealing to the notion of a microcosm um, where he says the Kabbalists considered man a microcosm, a symbolic mirror of the universe. So this idea that everything is contained in one small thing, right, that that uh, uh, that this this small infinitesimal thing can contain the infinitude of existence. Yes. He says ideal, and then he also has this little thing about idealism. He says idealist doctrine has it that the verbs to live, verbs to live and to dream, are at every point synonymous. For me, thousands upon thousands of appearances will pass into one. A complex dream will pass into one. Others will dream that I am mad while I dream of the Zahir. And he says, when every man on earth thinks day and night of the Zahir, which will be dream and which reality, the earth or the Zahir? And, and then that's, this is where he closes it out. And he says, I'm, I can still walk uh, through the street, empty hours of the street at night as if sort of, he can't really do it in, during the day. Um, he says, dawn often surprises me sitting on a bench in the Plaza Garay, thinking or trying to think of the passage in the Asrar Nama, which says the Zahir is the shadow of the rose and the rending of the veil. I associate that judgment with the report of that the Sufis attempting to lose themselves in God, repeat their own name or the 99 names of the divinity until they lose all meaning, which is really cool. Like that, that is the phenomenon. I forget the, the technical name of it, but when you say a word enough times, it, it loses its meaning. Um, yeah. So and it's also use... like mantra meditation is, is yeah. after that same kind of goal. Yeah. So you want to read the last bit? You can read it. Um, I long to tread the same path. Perhaps I will manage to wear away the Zahir by force of thinking of it and thinking of it. Perhaps behind the Zahir, I shall find God. So yeah. he, he, maybe he can take the power away from it by thinking of it until it loses meaning. And then maybe then will he see the entirety, right? Um, transcend the Zahir yeah. 
but if but is the is there anything to transcend beyond the Zahir <laughs> if it would just be God? But Zahir is another name for God. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's the story, man. So <laughs> the quote unquote like, story. Yeah. What the I'll I'll just tell you just I'll toss out one thing that you know this clearly is is a tale of obsession obsess obsessiveness obsession yes and becoming completely lost in something perhaps becoming completely lost in falling in love with somebody um, perhaps a more religious uh, you know this I think there is something really that he's saying about the deep religious call to like lose yourself in god which is like a, a lot of religions say that like you know that's what you ought to do but if that's really what you ought to do won't you go crazy you know yeah so i think one sort of obvious juxtaposition that you can't not at least acknowledge is he, he's in love with this woman who dies mm-hmm. he finds us here the next day becomes obsessed with the coin is that a metaphor for the obsession that comes with being in love with somebody. And when you're in love with somebody, it's all you can think about. It's all you can't get them out of your mind. It just infects every part of your, you know, when you're at first in love with somebody or maybe when you lose somebody that you love. So it seems at first like, okay, there's, there's no reason for her to be in the story and especially the, the fact that, it's so close together, her death and him finding the Zahir. There's some significance to that. Um, but because, like, at first, maybe you could think of it that way, but then she just almost entirely vanishes from the story. She gives a couple little hints of her of her memory um, late in the story, but, but, it, but it becomes so... If that was the original sort of engine of the obsession, it, it is soon... Uh, it's it's soon generalized into to something right. much bigger than that, right? Right, and so so maybe maybe it's just about obsession in general. Maybe it's about I don't know. You know, she's. It, it, I struggled to to fit in why not only why he opens with her, which I mean he might be obsessed. He doesn't really say that. You know, he just says he was in love with her. Yeah. Um, and 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 doesn't mention her too much. And but what specifically does it mean to Borges that this was a woman who was constantly changing her appearance to fit in, or constantly changing herself in an attempt, in a failed attempt to become to achieve an uh, idea, to I achieve mean, so perfection? This is my. I see this as running through a lot of the different aspects of the story. Is this kind of dissatisfaction with? particulars and like the imperfections of life and always trying to generalize and to achieve an ideal. And you see that in Teo Delina's story and you see it in her tragedy where she has one mistake that corrupts the ideal. And then that's pretty much over. It's for so her. funny. Like she got, she got, <laughs> she got tricked into buying a hat that wasn't really in fashion and that completely derails her. Uh, to connect that with Talan Ukbar, which also had a much more kind of explicit threat of idealism as uh, a way of kind of destroying the world. And and also in Bor- in the Library of Babel, those people who are just trying to figure out the truth, the one yeah. answer, the thing that will explain everything. It seems like Borges... There is a kind of cautionary tale 
element in in how he he sees this part of human nature and human motivation and drive. But again, like in this case, it's, it wasn't Borges's fault. He just found the coin, right? Yeah. And then and you get the sense that there's nothing you can do once you set your eyes on the Zahir, whatever form it takes. There's nothing you can do after that. So that's the problem with that interpretation, which I would love is, you know, uh, a kind of criticism of our idealism and our wanting to abstract and generalize and uh, and never being satisfied with the imperfection. But in this case, it's it is more pessimistic if if that's true because he didn't do anything. It seems to earn it. Yeah, I you know I I, I think that it is consistent right um, with the general. You saying a cautionary tale, I think, is sort of the right words to describe what Borges seems to over and over again be warning us about. And in some ways, the infinite is this is the enemy of the human mind. Mm -hmm. And to become obsessed with the ineffable God and the infinite universe and search for the perfect within that is something that we seem to have as a fundamental motivation and yet something that ruins us and takes away from our life like this you know yeah the the coin becomes everything and everything for borges fades in the distance only the coin remains and and he loses out on life you get lost in the infinite or in yeah the, the 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 idealistic landscape and it doesn't even have to take uh, form. It's almost like, you know, Plato's form of the good, which is just yeah, composed of all the other forms. It's not a thing in and of itself. It's just the perfection. It's perfection itself. And that seems like yeah, what yeah. the Zahir is. I, I liked what you said earlier where, so it starts out that the coin is a metaphor for some concrete things, all these other coins that right. are famous in history and literature and theology and and also just maybe a symbol for possibility, but earthly possibilities. And right. and then maybe a symbol of our free will. And then I forget how you put it, but it's like it starts to choke the imagination. At first it right. broadens the imagination and then starts to choke it. it narrows your vision. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's maybe like a good description of these things. They open your mind at first. But then they suck you in yeah. until you yeah, and, go crazy. Yeah, and we talked. We talked uh, uh, when we d described the Library of Babel, Babel, um, about this, just the obsessiveness that he's warning us against, right? Yeah. The the and it seems like it follows that same theme. It's just a theme now. Now it's about not about an infinitely large library. It's an infinitesimal thing that reflects everything like and it it sucks everything else out and 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 becomes the only thing in existence for that person um and maybe ultimately for all people for all people right because everybody can it's possible that everybody will lose themselves to the zahir right if that coin gets around to enough people it's like a virus um yeah wait so yeah when everyone on earth thinks of the zahir day and night which will be a dream and which a reality the earth is as I hear. So it is, a, yeah, it is idealism, the threat of idealism that now, like, what if everyone is so focused 
their their entire mind and their singular purpose is focused on this Zahir, they are creating a new reality, which is will make all of the other reality just disappear in a way that I think is consistent with the with the Zahir. If no one is there to observe anything but the coin, yeah. then the rest of the universe disappears and the universe is the coin. The universe <laughs> is the Zahir. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I came across something. So the N T scrawled scrawled on the coin, yeah. N T and then two. Maybe signifying the New Testament. And yeah. if you think of this in uh, the lens of Christianity, which is really the one religion that doesn't get um, referenced. Yep. In yeah, the story, only vaguely. Right? Yeah, the Rose and the Veil maybe vaguely and the NT vaguely. Yeah. But, but not explicitly. Like, Never explicitly. Yeah. And now you're going to have to correct me because you know a lot more about um, New Testament and Christian theology than I do. But it's there is this element of degrading of the earth things in favor of uh, a kind of heavenly world, a kingdom of heaven where there is just this one single pure thing, like pure love, and that that's everything, and that that's what we are all passing through this transient world to try to to try to get to. Is that a yeah. fair description of? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, there is a lot of discussion of um, giving yourself wholly to God in order to achieve perfection. So like, you know, there's obviously the belief in the metaphysical existence of perfection in heaven, but then there is this belief that you can, like through Christ, like through the the love of Christ and opening yourself and taking in it sounds gay taking in all of christ <laughs> um, take it all <laughs> taking, um it only sounds gay if you're a man um and uh and through that achieving perfection right, right. so yeah. i i think that that uh we probably both came across the same article in the paris review is is uh yeah where where there's some quotes um where Jesus is talking about the first of all the commandments is hero Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord, which is a sort of a monistic take. Like there, there's one, one big thing. And then he says, thou shalt love the Lord, thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And that sounds fucking obsessive. It right? sounds obsessive. And it sounds like maybe the Lord or Jesus is the Zahir. Jesus is the Zahir. And, yeah. and, it's. I thought that was really nice, like a really nice way of interpreting this. And so when the so the NT stands for New Testament, and the guy says the two stands for the second gospel, which is Mark, and that's what he's quoting. And he says something that I really thought was insightful, which is that in not talking about Christianity, and and Borges does this often. He in a Christian country, in a supremely Catholic country, he is giving uh credence to muslim religions and uh whatever else like jewish judaism and islam he's talking about them as if they are just as true as christianity and in not discussing christianity he's sort of subverting the 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 belief system of of everybody yeah well i mean i think it makes sense because you know like Judaism and the Confucianism, which he references, 
is still more focused on what we should do here on earth. Yeah, and behavior, right, right. The idea of Christianity and specifically that interpretation of 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 the Christian faith is in of a piece with the kind of idealism that uh, it seems like something Borges is warning us against in a lot of these works, this kind yeah. of obsession with a, a true ideal. And that's just not I, I think that's more characteristic of Christianity. We have a lot of rules in Judaism, but there's not an obsession with perfection. Right. And Christianity is often sort of by Christians, it is seen as a corrective of the religions like Judaism that focused on earthly actions because right. the belief was that you're so concerned about appearance and behavior that your heart is not, but your heart isn't in the right place. Right. So, so get your heart in the right place. And how do you do that? You give your heart to God and presumably this will make your behavior good, but, but that's not the point, right? The point is to achieve this unity with, with God and, and Jesus Christ is the conduit by which you achieve unity with God. In fact, the whole story of why Jesus is supposed to have come down to earth is because there was a separation between humanity and God after the, after the sin of Adam and Eve. And that schism was unable to be repaired until a God could become a human and be a bridge. Right. And so, so I like that interpretation that the coin is the bridge to perfection. But really, what he's saying, the bridge to perfection is going to make you a fucking crazy person who no longer cares about the, the world around them. Yeah. Or, and no longer has the capacity to because yeah. they, they're not able to perceive it anymore. Um, I, I don't, I, I think with Borges, I resist. Any yeah, yeah. kind of interpretation, like any, I think one of can, many. <laughs> this is one of many that I think is that works really nicely. Um, but I think the great thing about Borges is you can read this many more times and come up with totally different. I mean, one of the interesting things about this metaphor, like I was talking about, how mundane it is. It's just a coin in this case, right? Yeah. So it's almost like the human mind can take anything and it will and and no matter what it is you will be drawn you can be drawn at least towards this abstraction this um this quest for perfection or idealism that gets in the way of so it's it's in some ways a metaphor for obsession itself as you alluded to earlier it is it, it, the object itself is less important than the obsession or the yeah. quest, um, right. th it can manifest itself in many forms. So maybe Christianity is one of them, but it's definitely not the only one. Um, the, yeah. This is something that's just so part of human nature. It's so built into us that. Yeah, there's also this thing that this, like, only now have I, like, has become. Uh, clear to me what I was trying to to think of earlier about the difference between his obsession with the Zahir and uh, Teodelina and her obsession and the Jews and the Chinese and their obsessions. There is something that uh, 
it's very complicated to try to live a perfect life as a fashion model. There are a lot of moving parts. There is a, there's a complexity to to all of the things that you have to do, all of the things that you have to do to be a perfect Jew, all of the things that you have to do to be a perfect Confucian. Focusing on the one kind of makes things a lot easier. Right? It yeah. is now. Now I can. I'm not running the risk of getting conned into wearing a stupid hat when I wanted to be fashionable. I can solely focus on the one thing and this makes everything easy, right? So like, I'm just going to focus on this one thing. And, and he's never, even though he talks about how it, he's, uh, it's going to overtake his life and he can no longer feed and dress himself and he won't even know whether it's morning or evening. He will not know who Borges was. Yeah. He's never negative about it. He's never like rejecting it. He's always like, kind of neutral and kind of like well he's obsessed so he can't knock the zahir the zahir is still like this cool thing like he's not he's not saying like well he goes to a psychiatrist to try to rid himself of it and i think once he reads the book he says like there's nothing i can do yeah um and so there is this kind of resignation but he's but, yeah but he says to call this prospect terrible would be fallacious so he's but, but isn't isn't it? He said, I thought the thing that's fallacious is to call it his future because it won't be him anymore. It's, cons- it'll, uh, he yeah, will no longer yeah. have his identity. But he's resigned. Yeah, you're right. There's something about identity that he's talking about. So, he, but, and he says, one might as well speak of the terrible pain endured by an anesthetized man when his skull is open because he will lose himself, which is often, you know, in mysticism of all sorts, whether it's Kabbalism, Sufi, uh, Muslim yeah. or Gnosticism, losing yourself in that infinite is the solution. You're becoming one with with everything. And so you're not you. So it doesn't matter that I can't eat or or dress myself. Like that's, it's beside the point. Besides right. the point. Yeah. And it's interesting that that's the goal of a lot of these mystical yeah. uh, practices. But, you know, with Buddhism is to recognize that you're all things yeah. and, and no self. And although it's a little different because you're not trying to become like a single thing. Right. Um, you're you're, you're a, drop of the, a drop in the ocean. You know, Borges in his story, The Aleph, he also talks about a, a spot in a, someone's basement where you can see the entire universe. So he's really into uh, the microcosm, like the being that represented in a small thing, like infinity being represented in a small thing. So you're not a drop of water in the ocean. That drop is the entire ocean, right? Like you are, you are becoming right. the entirety of existence. And, and that's the Tennyson thing here. Yeah. The, if you could understand a flower, you could understand the whole universe. That's the temptation. Yeah. Right, right. And that's um, the narrowing of imagination, too. Yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. It's losing yourself in a different way. It's escaping the self. You know, plenty of people have written about this. Roy, Roy Baumeister actually wrote some nice uh, papers about this. The, the desire to escape the self seems, you know, it seems like the human condition is sometimes terrifying because we are this thing, this self, and we want to escape it. And we do it in various ways. Baumeister would argue that, you know, drinking and sex all these are ways of escaping the self and this is just a very explicit you know way of losing the self it's a it's but very it, focused it's i i it's yeah and i know i've made this point but it's in in these other cases and even in these the the metaphors that we're describing 
a person makes a choice to do it. And in this case, a person just gets a coin. Now, I, I suppose that yeah. could represent you stumble on some book of philosophy that just you that just consumes you and you can't help it or you are born into a certain religion that uh, yeah. emphasizes this um yeah there is but, this tension because he, he he talks about the coin representing free will and then but then the coin has essentially infected him so he's like oh yeah free will is a thing Right. Like and this this coin represents all of the the world is open to me and the determinists uh, are, are wrong. This coin represents free will. But the whole time he's getting sucked in in a way that's completely out of his control. Yeah. And 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 it seems like that was the way like he can try things like writing that story, but it's they are not going to work. And at a certain point, he realizes that there's nothing more he can do except give in to the coin. And that that's... that and that giving in, I think, is that like you know, Islam means submission. Uh, in in Christianity, you give you break your will to like become the will of God. It's that giving in that he's. I think in some way he's just giving into the coin. And I think that's something that Borges maybe doesn't want people to do is to uh, give in. Definitely, you know, and definitely. To retain their interest in particular things and not just general, abstract, single, ideal things. So, and, you know, he's definitely writing this at a time where that was uh, a big, you know, like Isaiah Berlin. I mean, I, I was thinking, we've never done The Hedgehog and the Fox, right? No, and we haven't. I, I would, that would be great. It's a little yeah. long, but it would be great to do, but... You know, the idea behind that is the hedgehog knows one thing. The fox knows uh, very well. The fox knows many things. And I think Borges is a, more of a fox in this case and worried about hedgehogs, that single-minded, obsessive focus, because I think people associated both uh, Stalinism and fascism with this kind of idealistic pursuit even at a political level i think this is something that is concerning borges yeah and he's never overtly political but it could very well be that he is saying something political um you know it also seems as if he is tempted by the one he's a, oh, yeah. he's he's a fox who's tempted by the power of the hedgehog right he in the lf that finding the that little thing in the basement that lets him view the entirety of the universe and all of existence is is tempting, right? To losing yourself in the coin is tempting. Wandering the halls of the Library of Babel is is tempting him. There is something that is calling him. The ineffable, yeah. the infinite, is really seems to be calling Borges because he writes so much about it, but he is. It objectively seems like to not want to give into that in a weird way he is giving into it by writing these stories I, but i don't know <laughs> i mean his character is giving into it yeah the, the person he calls borges is giving into it but yeah, yeah i get the sense that he doesn't want to but that he feels the siren call of it you know maybe his stories are in our uh, ways to tie himself to the mast or something oh my god that's in he's describing He's describing writing a story within this to distract himself. Right. And right. maybe that's exactly what Boris is doing. Maybe that's what He's, this whole story is. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe oh, that's, that's all cool. of his stories are just trying to distract or, himself from the, <laughs> the, 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 the awesomeness in, in the old timey sense of the word of the, of the infinite. He's, he's just writing stories to distract himself. Um, 
Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah, yeah that's super cool. All right. All right. Um, we always get a little giddy at the end of yeah, these forehead <laughs> episodes. <laughs> oh man, I wish you were still around. Oh, Borges. Have him on the podcast. Yeah, we could, we should do a séance. I mean, don't, don't close your mind. You, you uh, know, it could. <laughs> I I'm more open to some of those weird things than I ever have been in my life. Still not oh, that open. Oh my god, but, we're gonna have to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, you open yourself. I'm gonna go stare at my 25 cent coin uh, for the rest of the evening. <laughs> Try to right. escape to try to escape my existence. Now you have a puppy. Now you don't need. Oh to, yeah, that's right. Can't escape your right. life. I'll escape myself and the puppy. Life is awesome <laughs> until the puppy dies. <laughs> All right, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.